This is episode 212 of the Stem Cell Podcast, Development of the Heart, Lung, and Vasculature, with Dr. Mingjia Gu. Hey everybody, we are Drs. Daylon James and Arun Sharma. Welcome back to the Stem Cell Podcast, where we culture knowledge in stem cell research by talking to some of the brightest minds in the field. Once again, we'd like to remind everyone about the 2022 ISSCR annual meeting taking place in San Francisco. That's in mid-June. We were recently given the inside scoop on the presidential symposium, which will be a look back on the field by founder and first president, Dr. Len Zahn. He's been on the show. And a look ahead by former president, Dr. Christine Mummery. She's been on the show a couple of times. Don't miss out. Early registration for the meeting closes on March 9th. Today, we have Dr. Ming-Jia Gu at Cincinnati Children's Hospital on the podcast to talk about her research aiming to develop novel therapies for the regeneration of heart, lung, and vasculature in patients with congenital cardiac and pulmonary defects. We've also got our usual roundup of recent highlights and stem cell news that's coming right up. Oh man, I can't wait for ISSCR. I'm so hyped. Finally, in person, we'll be there. Can't wait. But first, are you modeling the human airway in vitro? Are your cultures physiologically relevant? Can you generate these cultures consistently? All important points. Learn about Pneumocult, offered by Stem Cell Technologies, a serum and bovine pituitary extract-free cell culture media for human airway epithelial cells. Expand these cells for extended passages while maintaining air-liquid interface differentiation potential to study respiratory biology, infections, and drug responses. Learn more at www.stemcell.com slash pneumacult. All right, you guys, I'm starting off the roundup with a paper from a group uh, that we've recently showcased on the podcast. That's Pekka Katayisto at uh, the Karolinska Institute. Uh, he does a lot of work in the mammary gland, and this is a story that was in Nature Cell Bio about metabolism and cell fate. So uh, we know that in any stem cell, you know, when you change fate, typically adult stem cells, because it goes from a quiescent state most of the time, and they're mobilized, there's got to be a lot of metabolic rewiring, right? You got to mobilize the energy to, to feed all that proliferation and action, right? Um, and that metabolic rewiring, of course, having to do with energy result, uh, also coincides with changes in the mitochondria and how many of them, how they function. Um, and Cariisto, actually, before he started his own lab, he showed that uh, human mammary epithelial cells, there's a, a population of stem cell-like cells amongst them, and the way that they uh, divide is an asymmetric division where they separately apportion chronologically old and young mitochondria. You know, mitochondria are constantly being renewed. There's constantly genesis of mitochondria. So you can distinguish the old and the new. Um, and what they found in this asymmetric division is that the progeny that omit the old mitochondria, they maintain the stem-like traits where the ones that inherit these ragged old hand-me-down mitochondria, they're the ones that differentiate, right? But the way that that actually works, you know, you can observe the separate apportioning, but the way that that actually leads to this differentiation or this asymmetric differentiation is not really well-defined at all. In fact, uh, until Pekka uh, Karisko had to start his own lab to figure that out. And that's what they've done here in this story 
using, I think, a pretty basic and straightforward, not basic, I mean, sophisticated and elegant, but straightforward approach where they use a mito tracker to, with different colors, really, to label uh, the newer mitochondria um, and sort them, right? And what they found was that the chronologically old mitochondria, right? Of course, they support oxidative respiration, but they respire less, um, which makes sense. They're old, ragged like me. Um, but uh, in the younger ones, they actually are able to, uh, through increased pentose phosphate pathway activity, they do undergo a lot more de novo purine synthesis. And that results in a balancing of all that oxidation with reduction and then restoring that balance allows them to maintain a stem-like fate. And that, that's really it. Um, I think a straightforward idea, but with, I think, really profound implications because it really is all about energy um, in these cells. And just this as an idea that uh, the, these older mitochondria, you know, uh, have have lost the ability or are in, instrumental in the loss of of stemness. I think raises a lot of questions, not just about how we can um, you know un, or apportion these cells, identify these cells by virtue of their young or old mitochondria, but like I don't want to say therapeutically, but how you might intervene in order to uh, in, increase the stemness of a population, or maybe understand how some of these degenerative diseases may undermine stem cell function. It may be mitochondrial uh, uh, mechanism there in part. So I, I think this is a really great uh, study, a nice basic story that has profound, I think, therapeutic implications of room. The mitochondria is the powerhouse of the cell. How many times have I heard that in my life? But yes, absolutely. It's a really cool story. I think it's something that could actually fit really well in nature metabolism as well, or, uh, you know, one of those journals too. It's a very mechanistic, hardcore metabolic story with a really nice developmental angle to it. I think as we've discussed, and as you just mentioned, metabolism is so critically important to determining cell fate, not only in the adult cells and differentiating adult stem cells, like what you're showing here, but also early development, right? Early development is so critically regulated. Like I'm talking about super early development, like, you know, zygote and beyond is so critically early, critically regulated by mitochondria and like the overall metabolism and energy that these cells need to actually turn into those early sublineages, right? And if you take it a little bit further during the differentiation process and during the developmental process, as we know, certain cell types are so critically reliant on high levels of energy and high levels of mitochondria muscle cells come to mind. So yeah, it makes perfect cells, perfect sense to me as to why mitochondria would be so critically important in determining cell fate. And, and one other thing, MitoTracker is one of my favorite reagents. I, I first actually started using it in undergrad and just some of the staining and some of the imaging that you can get by looking at these cells under with MitoTracker, it's, it's beautiful. It's really, really great. Agree. MitoTracker does not get enough run. And I also agree with your allusion to the developmental uh, relevance here. I'd be really interested to see in follow-up studies of how in this adult stem cell compartment, how that would compare to a more embryonic or fetal and see if there's really just a fundamentally different profile 
of these mitochondria? Like, are there even old mitochondria in, in these embryonic or fetal systems? Or are they all just, you know, raring to go? Um, it would be interesting to see again, if, if that we could see if that's what underlies that tremendous developmental potential and maybe try and endow uh, an older cell with that type of uh, renewal or stemness. So yeah, again, real strong implications here and a great study from our boy, Pekka. Come back on the show, my friend. Yeah, it was great talking to Dr. Katista. I think he was actually one of the first folks that I got to chat with when I was uh, joining the podcast. So uh, happy to have him back anytime. We're going to shift over to another friend of the show, Kevin Egan. Uh, he's actually shifted from Harvard to Biomarin, which is a, a biotech company. And this is actually, I think, probably one of the last papers that's coming out of his lab. Uh, this is a cell stem cell paper. It's actually a really useful resource in general. It's less of a mechanistic paper, but more of a, a resource for the stem cell community. And in particular, folks who are working with embryonic stem cells. The title of the paper is Whole Genome Analysis of Human Embryonic Stem Cells Enables Rational Line Selection Based on Genetic Variation. First author here is Florian Merkel, who I also believe has started uh, their own lab. But yeah, so we know about human ESCs all the time. Perhaps ESCs are not as well or commonly used after the advent of iPSCs, sure, but they are the ancestral gold standard when it comes to human pluripotent stem cell lines. And there are certainly a number of folks out there still using them. But what these folks in the Kevin Egan lab were able to do, they actually did a a ton of whole genome analysis, you know, genome sequencing, whole genome sequencing to actually look at genetic variations in 143 different human embryonic stem cell lines. All the, the favorite lines that you work with and you've heard of are all in here. So it's a, it's a great resource for the community. They annotated their single nucleotide and also structural genetic variants to see is how you know genetically unique and genetically variable are these different lines? And while they show that there's actually a significant fraction of these embryonic stem cell lines that have some of these large deleterious structural variants, the SNPs, the single nucleotide variants um, that you can only really figure out through detailed whole genome sequencing, they're actually found at a level that's comparable to what you would find in human blood-derived genomes. So that's encouraging. That's telling us that it's probably not too different, these human embryonic stem cell lines, from primary somatic tissues when it comes to their genetic variation. And the other thing is they actually were able to show that some of the unique SNPs that they found could be associated with cancer and other disease phenotypes, but again, at a level that's comparable to what you would find in somatic tissues. So it's a it's reassuring in a way to show that the embryonic stem cells that we're working with are not genetically abnormal in general. Of course, the, the big caveat here to think about is that we got we to gotta talk about passaging, right? How many passages does it take before an embryonic stem cell actually accumulates these genetic abnormalities? As we know, this does happen in culture. This definitely does happen. But in general, it's a good resource for the community, for anybody who's working with embryonic stem cells. Um, they actually have an online portal that you can use to actually dive into some of this genetic data, take a deeper dive into your favorite human embryonic stem cell lines and, and see what's going on with their genetics. 
Well, uh, Arun, you really had me convinced with your enthusiasm. There's a lot of could be, a lot of kind of comparable. I mean, I, I, I will say I'm, I'm with you on this as, a, as an important and valuable resource. Uh, two things. One, maybe three things. One, this is a kind of study I feel like they, they can only be done in these humongous labs at these major academic centers. Paper probably costs a million dollars. Um, so kudos. Uh, for getting it out there for the for the community uh two yeah i think that, that your allusions there to the it's i don't know it seems kind of like a hedge like yeah there, we did notice there's a little bit strangeness here but what isn't strange out there in biology I, I, my takeaway there is like okay i think that not that we're putting the cart before the horse here but i feel like there's a lot of efforts here to proof our our material you know we're like okay we need to make sure that this line is GMP. We need to make sure that it's ready for prime time and, you know, genetics and all that stuff and optimize. And then what, you know, I know that we're, we're there kind of experimentally in the early phases with the treatments, but I think that there's this real push to get some, some cells, you know, to work with, but we don't necessarily have the therapies. So I, I, I don't want to say it's premature. This is really important work, but it's a tremendous effort. Um, allocate to that to that uh and and i at the end of it i my takeaway is well i don't know that it's safe i just know that it's as safe maybe as uh, another adult stem cell uh transplant um which is not always safe let's be honest uh and to your point about the passaging i think there's a maybe it's difficult i mean what can you do but what's the standard here you know it's it's You've got the, the well-described, a great resource of all those lines. But then as soon as I take it to my lab and I passage it two, three times. And by the way, what's a passage? How many cell doublings in a passage? You put it in, mm -hmm. in, a, in a 10 centimeter dish at, at different densities, the cells are going to double a, a separate amount of time. So there's, there's all this unknown, I think, in the world of stem cells and their undifferentiated state and these standard lines that we rely upon. And we're trying to, I think, control them and make them fit into a neat clinical paradigm. And I, I don't know that we can, um, and I don't know that we need to yet. So I, I admire this Herculean effort uh, by Florian and, and colleagues and, and Egan, but, um, uh, and Stephen McCarroll, we should mention, uh, who's also corresponding in here, but I just, uh, I, I still think there's a long way to go before we, we need this information. Yeah, I agree with you. And I think, like something you're alluding to here, I think a lot of sequencing, a lot of the analysis of the lines that you're focusing in on, it has to be done on a case-by-case -case basis. So while this can be a broadly general useful resource, I think for not only for in vitro purposes, for folks hoping to do basic science research, but also for the clinical folks, I, I think having your own data set and your own data set of whole genome sequence lines before you actually use your cells for whatever application you want to use them for is, is critically important. So what I'm saying is, while this is useful, it may not be directly applicable or perfectly applicable to your line that you're using in your hands. So you should do your own sequencing, in, in my opinion, uh, if you want the most accurate output and accurate information about the genetics of your particular line. And the other broader point here is the, the sad reality, maybe not sad, but the reality is a lot of folks aren't using embryonic stem cells anymore. 
Hmm. Right. I personally, I've actually haven't used human embryonic stem cells in my stem cell cultures for close to a decade, maybe longer now. I've only used iPSCs, right? Hmm. And as we know, iPSCs are so much easier uh, to work with in part because of the ethical restrictions and certain restrictions that are still maintained with embryonic stem cell lines. And also because you can make iPSCs much more rapidly than, than you can human embryonic stem cells, right? So certain, we're not poo-pooing the, the effort here and the resource is tremendous. I just think, you know, there are certain caveats that you have to consider. Yeah, you make a great point. So this last point is that the, as a reference, it's really brilliant. And you could say it's like almost like the human genome reference, right? You have all these other humans walking around. You need some reference, some standard to look at. And maybe that's what this will serve as for any of these preclinical studies in H1 or whatever, the 143 lines they have here. Maybe the early days, they'll use a, a, a really well-defined line so that they can go back to this resource and say, okay, look, our cells are akin to this baseline ground truth that Eigenlab established. So yes. After talking about this paper for 20 minutes, we're going to move on. But, you know, it's important because, you know, the tech, the tech, as, as Arun, Arun, sorry, uh, uh, mentioned there at the end, is that people have moved on, right, to IPS cells. And that's what happens. The tech moves on. And I have a nice story from Nature Methods. It, it really illustrates that point uh, regarding the, the newest tech, you know, the tech that everybody else is still uh, in, in part jumping on the bandwagon and already it seems like it's progressing. We're talking about single cell RNA-seq or any kind of single cell um, genomics. Uh, it's a paradigm shift in biomedical science, right? Because you can see the cellular heterogeneity and that's the key. And for putting aside the biology and how amazing it is, every single day we talk about single cell on this show, but, uh, you know, we should, we should think about the tech that enabled it. And that was the cell capture, advances in cell capture, flow cytometry and uh, microfluidics and reaction compartment, compartmentalization, right? These are all techs that have now converged on the ability to, in high throughput, uh, capture these cells and, and do these massive, you know, cell atlas studies that are now circulating in the fly, the mouse, and the human, a lot of efforts being allocated there. Uh, but most of these single cell methods, they re rely on a stochastic or random cell capture method. And for that, you really need a, a substantial input, right? You can get the single cell resolution, but you can't put one cell in, obviously, right? You got to put a bunch of cells in some subset of those cells you'll be able to see. And that's for, for three main reasons that the large sample input that you need. One is that there's like, a, are the detriments really uh, to, the, to the high input there. And one is that you have this fixed run cost, right? You know, no matter how many cells I get from my 10X chromium run, it's gonna cost me two, three grand, right? Uh, if it's a hundred or a hundred thousand, um, that's one downside there. And then the second, there's a, a minimum cell input, right? For 10X, as I just mentioned, it's not a, I mean, I'm, I shouldn't be crying about it. 500 cells, that's, a, that's relatively few, you know, even five years ago, 10 years ago, maybe I'd be kicking myself for complaining about that. And I'm not complaining. This is what the author said, by the way. Third reason, um, and this is key, is the, the reduced efficacy at low, low cell, cell inputs because you have this stochastic methods um, that have, limited capture efficiency. And what that can uh, uh, result in 
is you can enrich for certain types of cells based on their size um, or other qualities uh, when you have these heterogeneous samples, if you haven't like sorted them before. So this is a challenge for small samples. If you want to look at like single comparing single organisms like C. elegans, you know, we know how many cells are in there. Uh, you got to pool all those together. And now here we go. Punchline, it's with organoids. We love our organoids on this show, but anytime you're doing an organoid study, you need to pool multiple organoids. And now we're reaching a threshold, I think, where we need to be looking at organoid versus organoid versus organoid to see if we can get some kind of standard, right? Um, but you can't do that right now in the current state of the art until uh, this group is Bart de Planck, who's from uh, Lausanne, Switzerland. And this was work that was done in part with another friend. Everybody is a friend on the show on this show. Uh, Matthias Lutoff, uh, he was on the show just a few months ago, um, and he contributed to the organoid part of this show, but this, uh, this, this study, but this really was a tech story. Uh, they, they developed this deterministic uh, method, they call it DISCO. I can't figure out what the DIS part of that is, um, but the CO is co-encapsulization. And what it is, is that you can do this single cell seek at really low input samples, less than 500 cells is what they say. And what enables it is that they have this really complex mechanism. You gotta look at the schematic, I'm no engineer. But the real key here is that they have these multiple inlets where you can input in a deterministic way, uh, whatever cell particles you want. And in this case, you, you get what you want because it's, uh, it's uh, machine learning, AI that's able to identify these things. And it's like relatively slow, but with a small input, 350 cells per hour, it's fast enough. Um, and the real key here is the cost, uh, which maybe, maybe we'll come back into the discussion, but it's cheap, it's relatively slower, but very precise, more than 70% of the capture efficiency. So 70% of the droplets will have exactly what you want in them. And then they prove the principle of this thing and the power of it by looking at 31 individual intestinal organoids uh, at different stages. And that was clearly with the help of Matthias Lutoff, and then did some, some of the seek and show that they progressed along the lineage uh, in a really controlled and predictable way. And then, uh, oh, well, I should say, they, it was interesting there, identified these uh, regenerative fetal-like cells there as one cell type, this Li6 positive cell. And then they also identified this new uncharacterized gobloid subtype. So that right there, uh, you're getting some novel insight of previously unrecognized cell. And then they correlated this to in vivo to mouse intestinal crypts and show that there is a compositional similarity, namely with respect to these regenerative cells. So they identified that even in steady state in the mouse intestinal crypt, which is an insight, you have these regenerative cells that are acting. So th this, I, I love talking about these stories on the show because I'm tremendously gratified if we ever cover a method and then, you know, whoever knows, three, four, six months down the line, we see that that method is in play in a, a stem cell story. Um, this is kind of two for one. They, they immediately showed the power of this in a stem cell system in vivo and in vitro using uh, these in vivo derived organoids um, and really showed how, how powerful the resolution of this tool was and, and, its, and its usefulness um, in a real experimental system. So I, I was really excited about this, Arun. Yeah, I think this is a great collaboration between these two labs. And of course, we uh, love to see Dr. Lutoff's work um, on the show all the time. We've had him on the show not too long ago. Um, these 
single cell approaches and all these technologies they're they're just coming out at lightning speed right now it's hard to keep up with all of these technologies but i absolutely love their first table it's not a scientific table it's a it's a economic financial table it's a comparison between all the different single cell technologies out there and it's it's showing the bottom line that this technology this disco technology only costs around $1 one US dollar per cell, okay, whether it's input or output cells that you're talking about. And then they compare that to all the other standardized technologies like the 10X, even they compare it to Fluidime from back in the day too. So that is very in your face. And we are all about democratization of technologies here on the show. These are great technologies, but you know, I think their true power is bringing them to everybody. Hmm. If I can use this technology cheaply and easily in my brand new lab, uh, that's great because traditionally, as you're alluding to, a lot of these single cell technologies aren't that cheap. They're, they, they're expensive and they require a certain number of cells to work with. So that's why I think this paper is great. And like what you're alluding to, it'll be cool to see if it really is this cheap and easy, how many other folks in the field end up adopting it? Yeah, I can't wait to see. You got to get on the horn, Arun, getting that lab started, keeping your eye on the bottom line. <laughs> but it's not really even just all about that, although it is. Uh, and also limit to detection resolution. They go down to as low as 50 cells here with the minimum input. Um, but also just experimentally, they, they drop this into the discussion I thought was a, a great footnote, is because it's deterministic, and aligned with this machine approach, um, you can, it's, it's whatever two uh, particles you want in a droplet. And what they noted are more than two. Uh, so what they noted, which I thought was great, is that you could put two cells. So I'm, I'm picturing like these a novel, you know, beyond just transcriptome or genomic sequencing, just a, a, a new approach to building structures where you're able to very carefully and precisely assemble, I don't want to say tissues, but you're able to put two cells together or multiple cells together of different types with very precise stoichiometry. Um, and I think that maybe there'll be a, a lot of builders out there that, that are, this is getting their imagination going. Yeah, absolutely. That's a cool idea and it's something I didn't really think about that part of it maybe has to do with the survival of these cells and how long you can actually get these things to to stick together and stay together long term I mean here we're just talking about the the sequencing process which is relatively short you know you're not getting these things to stay alive for a long period of time but yeah perhaps some bioengineering approaches down the road and bioengineers might be interested in this technology as well but enough with the new tech all right we've talked a lot about tech for the last couple of papers, we're going to shift it back a little bit to the basic mechanism. I'm going to wrap up the roundup this week with a, a cardiac story. Of course, I love the heart. Uh, this is a, a story in cell stem cell coming from the lab of Jennifer Davis over at the University of Washington. First author here is Darian Bug. And this is about cardiac fibrosis. It's a process that we're all pretty familiar with. After cardiac injuries, such as a heart attack, myocardial infarction, you have a fibrotic scar that forms in the heart. And in a lot of cases, this negatively impacts how the heart functions for the rest of your life. So this, the title of this paper is MBNL1, a specific gene, drives dynamic transitions between fibroblasts and myofibroblasts in cardiac wound healing. And so this 
shift between fibroblasts and myofibroblasts is actually really important in this fibrotic process, fibrosis that I was alluding to, the, the heart's fibrotic response after injury. And there's this particular gene, muscle bind like one, MBNL1, which actually promotes this fate shift, the differentiation between the fibroblasts into the activated myofibroblasts, which can secrete exocellular matrix and do all the stuff that induces the formation of the fibrotic scar. And this is actually really finally investigating the function of this particular gene, NBNL1, to see if how it actually impacts that shift. And if you could overexpress or knock out this particular gene, could you impact the downstream fate change in these fibroblast fates and ultimately the formation of the, the cardiac scar? Okay, so they found first in healthy mice, the, when they overexpressed uh, MBNL1 specifically in cardiac fibroblasts, it transitioned the fibroblast transcriptome to actually that of a myofibroblast. And after the injury, it promoted the myocyte, cardiomyocyte remodeling and the scar maturation. Okay, it tells the importance of this particular protein in that process. And then they did the what you might expect, and they induced a loss of MBNL1, I think using a Crelox-based approach. And it was actually able to limit the scar production and stabilization. So kind of the, the opposite effect. And that's ascribed to a reduction in the myofibroblast activity. All right. So the combination of deletion and injury actually caused some of these fibroblasts to expand and actually adopt certain features of cardiac mesenchymal stem cells. So in innate mesenchymal populations that may be found in the heart, um, not obviously not cardiac stem cells, mesenchymal stem cells that may be inducing some of the differentiation into the fibroblast lineages and that sort of thing. Um, so it's in general, a nice mechanistic story about a particular protein and the importance of a particular protein as a post-transcriptional switch and how this protein MBNL1 could regulate the transformation from fibroblasts into myofibroblasts, which are really important in the fibrotic process and the scar formation process. And of course, the ultimate goal here, and this is, I have to say, a basic study, the ultimate goal is regulating the formation of the cardiac scar. And maybe this is one of the really critical proteins that may be able to um, alter the formation of the scar leading to healthier hearts after a myocardial infarction, something like that, right? I'm talking long-term, I think this is really diving into the mechanism, but yes, we have to talk about those applications too. Yeah, of course, I go right to the applications and I'm thinking, because I'm just fascinated by the, the biology of the heart and, and distress, right? I mean, the whole idea of the myofibroblast proliferation as a stopgap to keep you alive and then the unfortunate maladaptive sequelae of that. Um, it's a mystery to me just, it, it just in terms of like teleologically, like why? Why did nature do this? And when I read this study, it's kind of like, okay, maybe the idea here is we'll just stop the scar from ever forming, right? And then stop the myofibroblast from ever being specified, but that's got to have some downside here. I'm sure in these mice, there was like mitigated scar, maybe improved survival. I don't know. Um, but that actually is tenable to me. You know, you don't have to get rid of the response altogether. Maybe you just mitigate it. But what really stuck out to me is this, uh, just because I didn't read the paper all the way through, is that the cardiac mesenchymal, uh, when they didn't become the myofibroblasts and they came the mesenchyme, what of that mesenchyme like useful? Do they proliferate and provide any kind of 
structural support, you know, in the, in the same vein as the myofibroblast? Do they contribute to any kind of functional cell type within the cell? I'd be really interested to see if those cells are, are therapeutic, or benign, or perhaps maladaptive in their own right. So I, I, there's a lot of questions that this raises, and that's a great paper, right? Forget about the applications. There's a whole bunch of mysteries here in targets now. I never heard of MBNL1 uh, or two or three if there's more of them. So it'd be interesting now to have a, a, a new candidate in the heart that has a lot of relevance to uh, disease and injury. Yeah, absolutely. And it also brings back uh, brings it back to a point that we've talked about a little bit more recently on the show, which is the idea of cell fate plasticity. And maybe there's more of these shifts that are happening endogenously in the body than we, we would think about, right? Even in this particular case, this is more of a, a modulation of this particular protein MBNL1, but who knows if there's some sort of, you know, there is an endogenous shift here in the heart between the fibroblast and the myofibroblast populations. Um, and it'll be cool to see what other plasticities and what other fate shifts are happening throughout the body. I'm sure there's many more that we haven't, haven't uncovered yet. Well, you know who knows a lot about the heart? as well as the lungs and the vasculature. Yeah, yeah, I do too. But there's also Ming Jagu, and she's <laughs> coming up just a minute from now. But first, I have a quick message from Stem Cell Technologies. And that's this. Do you work with skeletal muscle progenitor cells? The Stem Cell Technologies Human Myocult Workflow supports your muscle research from start to finish, allowing you to derive, expand, and differentiate human skeletal muscle progenitors. You can also expand mouse myogenic progenitors using mouse myocult expansion medium. Learn more at www.stemcell.com slash myocult. All right, everybody, on this episode 212 of the podcast, we have a special guest, Dr. Mingjia Gu, who is assistant professor of pediatrics at the Cincinnati Children's Hospital also has a position there at the Center for Stem Cell and Organoid Medicine, also known as CUSTOM. The overarching goal of the Goo Lab is to develop novel therapy for the regeneration of heart, lung, and vasculature in patients with congenital, cardiac, and pulmonary defects. The group conducts translational and interdisciplinary research using patient-specific iPSCs, vessel and lung organoids, animal models, single cell RNA, ATAC sequencing, and spatial transcriptomics, all that stuff for disease modeling and high throughput drug screening. Dr. Gu, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. Thank you so much for having me. Yes, well, it's our pleasure, Mingjia. Let's start by uh, talking about your origins, at least the origins at the new institute. You were opening up a new lab as the whole world was shutting down. I'm, I'm sure that's not how you would have planned it. Uh, and maybe we'll come back around to that some sometime later in the show vis-a-vis -vis some of the challenges there. But one of the benefits from, from where I'm sitting is that you were starting the next major personal and professional chapter for yourself as the whole world was kind of reframing this scientific healthcare reality, whatever you want to call it. So it was kind of like starting from scratch for all of us. Can you share with us your vision of how your lab will apply stem cells and human developmental models and all those tools I just said in the intro toward regenerative therapies in this new paradigm? What's your vision? Yeah, speaking of that, we're actually 
also working on long work noise because of the pandemic. I feel that it's it's not a great time to start a lab, but it's also a new opportunity as the biomedical field are, you know, the field is drawing more attention uh, for people to invest, to develop new models to help advance the field. Um, so I feel lucky in that regards uh, and am primarily uh, affiliated with pulmonary biology here at Cincinnati Children's. Uh, and because of my background in stem cell and organoid medicine, we started to think, you know, how we could use uh, what we have uh, we have done in the lab to to help solve the, some of the pandemic problems. Um, so over the past two years, we are also thinking um, to establish new long organoid models. Uh, and as you know, my background is more of a vascular biology. And so far uh, in the field, in the lung organoid field, um, there's no uh, lung organoid with lung specific mesenchyme and mesoderm derived other lineages like the vasculature. And we know that the cytokine storm and the hyper uh, inflammation is critical uh, in this uh, COVID-19. So we wanted to really model the whole uh, spectrum of the disease by incorporating the mesoderm derived uh, vasculature and mesenchyme into the lung organoids. Um, so that's something uh, we think would be valuable uh, for future and for the long run, um, you know, um, to hopefully contribute um, to part partially uh, to the problem solving. Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, you and other folks in the vascular and cardiac fields have been in some ways perfectly positioned during the pandemic to actually kind of rotate and shift our work a little bit more towards to focus on COVID, right? Like, so you're talking about some of the lung organoid work. Um, we've talked about even folks in the, the brain field, you know, Madeline Lancaster, who's well known in stem cell biology. She actually shifted some of her work to focus on COVID. I shifted some of my cardiac differentiation work to focus on COVID, right? So it's um, it's definitely a hot topic, but I think we were really well positioned in the stem cell field to, to make this jump. And like you mentioned, you're a vascular biologist by training, and we've had a few vascular disease models modeling folks on the show as of late. Dalon is actually a vascular biologist too, by the way. Um, and so you're an expert in the field and you've done actually a lot of work on pulmonary arterial hypertension in particular. I actually wanted to take a deeper dive into one of your recent papers in science translational medicine, where I actually used iPS-derived ECs and endothelial cells to conduct this phenotypic you know, drug screening project. And I thought part of the real cool part was, you know, you took it a step further with some of your in silico analyses to actually identify a drug candidate, this tyrosine kinase inhibitor, uh, Trifostin AG1296, is that right? Right. Yeah. yeah, so it's a potential treatment for pulmonary arterial hypertension, PAH, and it, you were able to actually reverse some of these vascular dysfunction phenotypes in a rat model. So you took this in silico approach, found this candidate, and actually brought it back to a, a model system, which is really cool. So why don't you take us through this work a little bit more, and in particular, if you want to start maybe a little bit of background on pulmonary hypertension and why it's such a hard disease to study and, and also like what's next for this drug. I'm assuming that you're thinking about maybe clinical trials or something like that. So take us through the work. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Um, so for this work, we thought to do a high throughput drug screening mainly because so far there's no effective therapy that target the fundamental uh, pathobiology in pulmonary arterial hypertension. And most of the therapies, those are um, vasodilators. 
So it relieved the symptoms, but still not solve the problem, the fundamental uh, problem. And over the years, uh, my mentor back at Stanford, her uh, expertise is to understand, you know, the molecular biology, the molecular mechanism underlying the vascular um, dysfunction in uh, pulmonary hypertension. So we were the first group uh, used uh, patient-specific induced pluripotent stem cells uh, to, to generate uh, vascular endothelial cells and smooth muscle cells to further you know, understand the disease mechanisms. And we found a couple of uh, functional assays that could help us distinguish uh, patient cells versus you know, healthy control cells. Um, and going forward, um, like based on what we have found, we wanted to use that cellular phenotype that we observed in the culture dish uh, as a functional readout to do a high throughput drug screening uh, to see what are the compounds out there that are FDA approved and that can be repurposed um, to improve the vascular function. And the IPS derived endothelial cells are great cell source because it's patient specific. Um, it carries the, the mutation that we're interested in and uh, potentially can generate a limited number of the cells uh, for the high throughput purpose. So we, we did that experiments in thousands of like culture plates. Um, and our readout is to see which compound can improve endothelial cell survival under, uh, under stress condition. And in that, um, in that experiment, we did same withdrawal uh, to create a, like a nutrition deprived uh, environment for the in to injure the endothelial cells. And then we see what are the compounds that could be uh, protective. Um, this is related to the disease phenotype because in PAH pulmonary hypertension patients, um, you will see the endothelial cells being apoptotic. Uh, and that's sort of the, the first response that we think that leads to all the uh, subsequent events like the smooth muscle cell hyperproliferation. And the patients also have rarefaction of the distal macro vessels. And um, that is why we're interested in you know, screening for compounds that could uh, help us the, the vascular regeneration and protect them under a stress condition. Um, and we also incorporated uh, bioinformatic approaches um, using the LINCS database. So what that database uh, tells us is uh, they have a group of compounds um, with associated uh, transcriptome. So we know like for this specific compound, although this is not cell type specific, but we know like, what are the genes that could be upregulated or downregulated by a specific compound. Um, so we first generated disease signature by comparing normal versus uh, PAH uh, transcriptome in endothelial cells. And we um, you know, screened the, the, the compound pool and see based on, um, based on the information in the LINCS database, um, what are the drugs that could potentially target those abnormal genes uh, and we overlap that uh, pool with or you know, wet lab uh, drug screening results to come up with our uh, candidate drugs for follow-up animal uh, studies. So I think that's, that's the strength of the, the approach. Yes, underscore strength there. This is such a great example of the, one of the big ticket promises of IPS cells, right, is that we'd be able to do this large scale, you said it, thousands of, of cell culture dishes for 
drug or tox screening. Um, so yeah, congratulations on that path. But that's not really even your only trick, right? In the kit, you're, you're also uh, delving into, into primary tissue to untangle the cellular and molecular pathology of uh, developmental disease. Uh, in, in this most recent case, uh, you were able to use the human fetal heart to decipher the molecular pathology that contributes to hypoplastic left heart syndrome. And I really encourage our listeners to have a look at that paper. It's from a couple of years back in cell stem cell, but it was such a brilliant combination of tech uh, primary human tissue that's very scarce and precious, IPS cell diffs, you threw it in there just because why not? You got to have some IPS. I don't want to un underplay it. It was important. Um, endothelium, you know, you had a big, big part of that. And, and that that was not even it. You had xenopus in there. So you, you really went deep uh, with a lot of assay. Um, but my main takeaway is Arun alluded to, I'm a, I'm a vascular biologist. I'm a real sucker for endothelium of any stripe. So my takeaway was the primacy of the endocardium, or in this case, defects in the endocardium in driving the phenotype. And of course, kind of as an aside, you generated this whole cardiac endothelial cell atlas that included arterial, venous, capillary, endocardial, valvular, lymphatic ECs, and maybe some other endothelial cells in the heart there that we're not aware of, I would guess. So should we be looking at all these EC subtypes individually for their disease relevance, considering how important, I know endocardium is a big deal, you know, it's primary theirs, but still, should we be looking at these other EC subtypes? And also on the mm -hmm. other side of that, how do you envision therapeutic application of uh, specific EC subtypes? Do like, are you, are you thinking about like delivery in this so-called angiocrine uh, regenerative processes? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a very good question. And we've been thinking about this a lot. And as you know, with all the advances in single cell technology, now we have a very high resolution to understand in those cell subtypes. Uh, and um, we are also very fascinated by all the heterogeneity in the endothelial population that we have observed based on all the single cell and spatial transcriptomic analysis that we're doing. Um, like in the heart, as you mentioned, there's endocardium population, endocardial endothelium, uh, that is very critical during heart development, and it can give rise to a lot of um, critical structures in the heart. Um, and the uh, artery cells, vein cells, those are all fundamentally different uh, during development. And, and now, as a lot of uh, developmental biologists um, you know, use single cell technologies to further um, push the frontiers uh, on understanding uh, endothelial subtypes, what we wanted to achieve uh, as stem cell biologi biologists is to further you know, differentiate different endothelial subtypes from uh, iPSCs. That's also one of a theme uh, in our uh, lab at the moment. And we think that's critical to understand disease uh, because for example, for one of the disease that we're working on, it's called um, alveolar capillary dysplasia. Uh, and recently, I think it's in 2020 or 2021, um, people start realizing that there are two endothelial subtypes in the alveolus. Um, and one is named um, ACAP, which is aerocytes that mediates the gas exchange. And the other type is general, general endothelial cells. Mm. Um, 
Yeah, so we found in uh, ACD patients, we saw dramatic uh, cell population changes only in the ACAP cells, but not in the GCAP cells. Um, so, you know, to fully understand the pathology associated with the abnormal development of the alveoli in the disease uh, and the capillary development, we really need to zoom in into the cell subtypes to see, you know, what are the, um, the transcriptomic changes, what are the functional changes uh, on those cells, um, you know, um, because functionally, these two cell types, they, they're also distinct. One is mainly a function as a stem cell in response to injury, and the other is more of uh, interact with lung epithelium at the alveolus to mediate gas exchange. Um, so I think we need to be more precise uh, in terms of uh, disease modeling. So we are trying to see if we can really you know, generate this uh, ACAP cells in the culture dish from the iPSCs uh, by providing the, the appropriate microenvironment um, um, and use those cells to, you know, to model disease and to screen for compounds that could, you know, boost the population um, uh, in disease. We're also uh, collaborating with other groups to do some nanoparticle delivery. Uh, I think which is also a promising uh, method for, you know, therapeutic purpose, uh, both in vitro and in vivo, um, to specific cell types. Yeah, so actually, that's what I wanted to ask about was kind of the the therapeutic side of it. You know, disease modeling is one thing, and we've talked about a lot of, with a lot of folks who are using iPS-derived ECs for various forms of disease modeling, whether it's for pulmonary hypertension or even like drug cardiotoxicity, that sort of thing. Um, but therapeutic applications for ECs and, you know, engineered vasculature is, it's a different animal. It's a different beast, right? And this is actually something we love asking our vascular friends, our vascular guests who have been on the show. It's, it's kind of the, the big elephant in the room. How do you actually make ECs from IPSCs in a way that's acceptable for therapeutic and clinical applications? And, and so I guess there's a few ways to do this, right? One is the engineering approach where you actually engineer vasculature and vascular networks, ex vivo, like 3D printing, bioengineering, all this kind of stuff. And then, you know, it, but it's part of it is a problem of scale, right? What is that, the old fact? It's like, if you lined up all of the blood vessels in your body and from end to end, they would wrap around the earth multiple times. So that just kind of gives you an idea of how many of ECs and how much vasculature you would need to engineer perhaps to utilize in some clinical applications, right? It's an intricate network, this whole vascular network. So, you know, the one big question is, do you think we can ever get there when it comes to actually doing ex vivo engineering of vasculature for clinical applications? So the engineering approach is one, but then there's also the, the in vivo, just angiogenic approach where you just stimulate de novo angiogenesis and vascular genesis through growth factors, right? So, you know, dive into the clinical side and the translational side a little bit more. What's the best way to make vasculature? That's a very good point. Um, and I, I know you have also, you know, been working on cardiomyocytes, which do not really proliferate fast when you're culturing in vitro. So it's going to be hard to generate enough cells for cell replacement therapy. Uh, for vascular cells, one good thing for potential cell replacement therapists that they propagate uh, in vitro, as long as you, you know, provide a, a good um, environment, you dump all the growth factors, they can proliferate and pathage for like 20, 30 times. 
if you keep the condition right. Um, so I think um, from the cell replacement therapy uh, point of view, it's not very hard to generate enough cells uh, for vascular regeneration. Um, and we can also at the same time like, use the iPS-derived uh, either vessel organoids or, or endothelial cells to find the compounds that could further boost uh, the cell uh, you know, plasticity or, or regenerative capacity and combine you know, the cells with the uh, you know, optimized uh, condition. You provide either like uh, extracellular matrix to support the, the scaffold um, or you provide additional uh, growth factors um, to give the cells a better environment. Because uh, for example, uh, if you wanna regenerate vessels in a um, heart uh, infarct, infarction area, then that area, you don't really have a good environment. You don't have blood supply. Those are all fibrotic tissue. How do you, um, transform the cells in the environment like that, I think to do that, you may need to provide the cells with the proper condition, uh, like the, the environment, the supporting matrix, the, the growth factors and all that. Um, and, and also I think the structure of the vessels is important um, instead of you know, transplanting single cells. Um, but engineering approach is definitely the next step. Uh, and that is also something we're interested in exploring in our lab. Uh, we're doing like 3D vessel organoids. Um, and we also wanted to make it more um, tissue specific because you see a lot of heterogeneity in the capillary, especially in the capillary beds in different organs. And to the, the tissue specificity of the endothelial cells or the vessel organoids, it's very hard to maintain uh, in vitro. Uh, I think that's also a uh, a technical hurdle uh, for the field. Um, say if you want to regenerate uh, lung or heart uh, macro vessels, those cells need to be like tissue specific. Like the, the heart uh, capillary network may not work in the lung alveolus to mediate the gas exchange because they're fundamentally two different endothelial subtypes. So I think it's also important to develop new strategies to maintain the tissue specificity of those endothelial cells. Um, and I think as, as we know, as vascular biologists, we know after we isolate the cells from in vivo uh, environment and culture them on a culture dish, uh, they will lose their organ identity over time. So uh, I think the critical step is how to maintain a proper uh, micro environment to cell, for cells to keep the identity. Um, and in the future, after we propagate uh, in vitro, we can transplant back to the, to the organ um, for them to to do the to do their job. Yeah, you talk about the the transplant. I want to just zoom in on that for a minute. Um, and you mentioned engineering and three D. I mean, this is this is where a lot of momentum is building behind uh, the combination of organoids, also from multiple tissues or germ layers. You know, these so called assembloids. So there's there's all these. I think there's a lot of attention being paid to this critical gap that we have in in to traverse in order to get to therapeutic endpoint is, is yeah scale right getting to 3d both for those reasons you mentioned their tissue specificity also i guess the notion is maybe just to create something that's transplantable I, i'm sure you're aware of all this stuff you know cincinnati children's is where some of the seminal work 
uh, with Organoids has been done. I mean, they put in the name, right? The Center for Stem Cell Organoid Medicine. Um, and you wrote a nice preview, actually, just a few months back in Cell Stem Cell, describing some of these stories that have been emerging about combining different germ layers to create a more uh, complex organoid. Um, do you think, and this is the question here, um, and it's tough to say, but you're at the beginning of a very promising career. So you can get out on a limb, Mingja. I want to see you get there. Um, do you think that these technologies will ultimately be extended, you know, in terms of organoids assemblers to make like actual primitive organ rudiments that can be used, you know, transplanted directly for regenerative therapies? Or did you, do you think that it's maybe, uh, as you just alluded to, that you want to make the cells in something that's like, complex and mirrors the developmental uh, organogenesis there and then inject the cells, isolate those cells, which are like the right cell for the job, so to speak, and then inject them in like cell suspension. Do you think it's either or, or both of those? I think it's, for example, for the, uh, for the preview that we just wrote uh, that, uh, you know, now we are thinking about more of generating multi-organ organoids uh, that with uh, cells arise from different germ layers um, to make uh, a better organoids. I think that method is more of the improvement of the maturity uh, of the iPS derived organoids was this uh, critical um, step for cell transplantation or organoid transplantation. We want the ultimate goal uh, in the stem cell and organoid medicines, we want to create something that is as um, similar as the native tissue, um, you know, as similar as possible to the native tissue. Um, so improve the maturity by generating uh, multi-lineage organoids. This is one uh, critical step, you know, further from all the previous approach, you know, you know in generating a single uh, pure cell type. Uh, which has its own um, advantage uh, if you want to use it, you know, to study some disease mechanism or target a specific cell type, then it's a good approach to generate a pure population of a specific cell type in 2D. Uh, but now in 3D, the system is way more complex as different, you know, cells are located at different um, like location in the 3D spheroids, they receive different uh, levels of the growth factors. Um, and those introduce uh, tremendous heterogeneity in the 3D organoid system rather than a 2D pure uh, system. Um, so I think moving um, toward the like engineered 3D with multi-lineage uh, cells, is promising, it's more promising for regenerative, regenerative medicine, uh, mostly because uh, it's more, uh, it's a better platform resembling what we have in the human tissue, because uh, we have that cell cell interaction uh, during the development and during disease progression. The, the cell cell crosstalk also plays critical role um, in this. So we also wanted to model that by creating the multi-lineage organoids. Um, from iPSCs and also the, yeah, the maturity, the maturation um, seems better, you know, than doing a single lineage differentiation because you, instead of, you know, adding different growth factors uh, per, uh, uh, provided by the surrounding cell types, we actually, if you have multi-lineage in a single spheroids, 
the cells can uh, receive the intrinsic uh, signal, the, the growth factors, the um, yeah, uh, provided by the surrounding cells. And that's more of a natural uh, process uh, for cells to differentiate and to mature. So I think that's a promising direction as well. Yeah, I think these assembloid and organoid approaches, these combined tissue types, that's really become quite popular as of late. I mean, we've talked about Sergio Pashka's work all the time on the show on the, the neural side of things, but I think cardiac and cardiovascular is really starting to adopt this technology as well. So it'll be cool to see what you guys do and you know what, what your lab and other labs focus on when it comes to these assembloid-based projects and, and cardiovascular biology. And I mean, you're at a great place to do this kind of work. You're at Cincinnati Children's, right? It's a real powerhouse in stem cell biology, and in particular, organoid biology with their new Center for Stem Cell and Organoid Medicine or CUSTOM, right? It's, it's almost like every other episode we're talking about work that's coming from Cincinnati Children's. Some really amazing organoid projects have come there, come from there recently, whether it's like, you know, Jim Wells and his you know, gut organoid work or your own cardiovascular work. We've covered a lot of these topics and these stories on the show. So tell us, you know, we always like to ask new PIs about why they chose their current institution or their institution to actually start their, their labs. So, you know, tell us about Cincinnati Children's, why you chose to set up shop there and maybe actually some of your favorite collaborations you've had so far. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I only have good things to say about this institution because uh, I have a lot of, you know, interesting ongoing projects, you know, working together with uh, other custom labs and labs at Palmer Biology at Heart Institute. Um, given the, the nature of my work focusing on both cardiac and pulmonary fields and stem cells. Um, and that's just also the main reason why I chose to come to this place. Um, it's a big pediatric center. And my work, uh, you know, we do a lot of research on understanding pediatric diseases, congenital heart disease, and, and lung disease. But those are all related to the developments. Uh, and in several um, you know, deep pockets here at Cincinnati Children's or like the Heart Institute, they do a lot of amazing work uh, for heart regeneration and pulmonary biology and pulmonary medicine. Um, they're one of the first centers launched the lung map, uh, which is to, to um, single cell map the, the human lung tissue and mouse lung tissue. Um, and, and also, of course, the Stem Cell Institute. Um, being a vascular biology uh, biologist myself, uh, as I mentioned earlier, one of my research interests is to understand the tissue specificity you know, of the vasculature as as, you know that the progenitors they have a lot of plasticity that responds to you know surrounding environments. So I thought this is a great place for me to really understand that because um, we have different um, stem cell biologists building up different uh, organoid systems. Like Jim Wells is working on the intestine, colon, Takatakebe working on liver, uh, and Jason Chu and Zhu and those are all recent recruits uh, to the custom. They work on building uh, brain organoids. Um, so I think was that um, I have a unique opportunity to really you know, incorporate or mass income and vascular uh, system uh, with their ongoing work um, to understand the vascular development in an organ specific manner. So that's something also very attractive to me. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think uh, Cincinnati, they're definitely looking to the future there at Cincinnati Children's. And uh, I believe that you're going to, you're going to lead them there. 
Ming Jiao. And uh, speaking of the future, I mean, Arun likes to explain to me like I'm some demented boomer how important it is nowadays <laughs> and moving into the future to like connect with the larger connect. I'm doing air quotes um, with the larger scientific world via social media and an internet presence. And I will concede he's absolutely right, but I'm also quite stubborn. So there, um, but I, I also was not surprised with what I've learned from Arun. I was not surprised to see that your website really paints a vivid picture of not only your personal history and productivity and the research focus, which is like standard website 1.0, but I didn't realize now we're on the website, website like 5.0. I missed two, three, four <laughs> somehow. But, um, but also in there is like the culture that you're trying to foster in the lab. And I see that now in a lot of these lab websites where they like Alejo, we just had on the show. It really like tells you about the culture. You read about the website and some of the info there and you're like, oh, wow, I want to be there. And one of the tidbits that I really liked um, one of the quotes was this, the fragment here. So I'm going to let you put into context, but the fragment of the quote is quote, move fast and break things. If you never break anything, you're probably not moving fast enough. Unquote. I don't know if that's your personal quote. I don't think it was attributed. So I'm attributing that to you. Um, tell us what kind of person you're looking for there. Cause I love that idea. If you're not, I mean, I wouldn't tell it to my kids because I, I mean, I don't have insurance. But I would, I would, I love the idea of breaking to learn. Will you just, will you just tell us a, a little more specificity on the type of person you're looking for? In the right. Life? Yeah. Thank you for bringing it up. It's interesting <laughs> to, to talk about. <laughs> yeah, I, I consistently you know, update my website. You know, whenever something new um, came to my mind and I want to share with my folks, I'll, I'll put on a website. And I always encourage encourage them to, you know. Uh, look at what I, you know, change on the website. Um, yeah. And speaking of the what you just mentioned, like move fast and break things to to really get things done. Um, yeah. That's that's. I think that's more of me, I guess. Um, cause cause we know like the whole scientific field is moving very fast, and I want to encourage my people to to be brave to try out different things. Um, even like they will make mistakes along the way. That's absolutely okay. If they don't make mistakes, they don't learn. Um, so I want to encourage them, you know, to to be brave and to move fast. And and it's absolutely okay to make mistakes and break things. And that's actually set the fun like foundation for all the future innovation. Hashtag be brave and join the Ming Shagu lab at Cincinnati Children's. <laughs> Absolutely. I think that's the right way to do it. I mean, like you said, the scientific field and in particular stem cell biology exactly. is so crazy fast that to be innovative, you have to take risk. And I think that's, it's tricky to do sometimes as a new PI because, you know, you want certain projects to go well, but, you know, high risk, high reward, right? I, I think you're approaching it the right way. So, you know, thanks so much for being here, Mingxia. And before we actually let you go, we're going to ask you a couple of science peripheral questions that we like to ask our guests here on the show. And the first one we want to ask you is, you know, if you are outside of the lab, well, what do you like to do? So what are some of your, your hobbies outside of science? I used to go for ski trips um, while I was back in Bay Area. I, I went like ski trips bi-weekly uh, when I was a student, a postdoc. Uh, I don't know if my PI knows that <laughs> back then, uh, but that's something I'm passionate about um, because it's, you know, it, it helped me, you know, refresh, get refreshed. 
uh, and and I just need that excitement in my life. Absolutely, I, I totally remember yeah. that. Yeah, I remember yeah. you uh, showing me pictures from your escape trips to Lake Tahoe. Oh, really? And, yeah. Oh, cool. Oh, yeah. And actually, you're part of the reason uh, that I got inspired to get into snowboarding too, because it seemed like so oh, much really? fun. Yeah, I had never snowboarded until you know until Stanford, and uh, it seemed like a lot of fun. So, absolutely, you got to take full advantage of it, right? Um, yeah, and I guess the the last question we wanted to ask you is again something we like to ask a lot of our guests here on the show is what's the best piece of advice that you've been given, either professional or not professional? Right. Yeah, I think I received so many good advices along the way. Um, I think one piece of uh, advice that I got, you know, since I was a kid, is to you know really find what you love. Um, cause I think no matter what you do in your life, um, what is your job? Like there's no job that is easy. Um, it's, you know, especially after I started my own lab, I faced challenges, um, you know, obstacles all the time. And I think the only thing that kept me on going is I really passionate about what I'm working on. Yeah. So I think for, for the young generation, the young people really, um, keep looking for what you're passionate about, what do you love, uh, and just keep looking, don't settle until you find it. Wow. So that's some inspiring words, I think, for our listeners. And in totality, just to sum it up, we've got move fast on the slopes, as well as in the lab, break some things, move with passion, do what you love. I mean, these are all great pieces of advice. Um, and I couldn't uh, second them more. I'm sure Arun will agree. We appreciate you, Mingjia, taking uh, the time uh, to talk to us here and to all of our listeners. And we're following your lead. Can't wait to see what you do next. And I'm sure you'll be on the show in no time to share your next great discovery. Yeah, thank you so much. I really enjoyed the conversation. All right, y'all. That brings us to the end of this episode. Don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter at www.stemcellpodcast.com to get the show notes, including an episode summary and links to all of the interview and roundup papers. You can also reach out to us on Twitter at Stem Cell Podcast or via email at info at stemcellpodcast.com with feedback or to suggest guests. Thanks to Dr. Gu for joining us from Cincinnati Children's for this episode. We'll be back in a couple weeks, guys. Thank you so much for listening.